You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's 19 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock and we've got Dr. Chris Smith with us on the line. And uh, Chris, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. But on that sticky note, on the bubblegum conversation, what is chewing gum? <laughs> it's just gum and very, very sticky. And actually, it's also made even more famous by this year's Ig Nobel Prizes because the Ig Nobel Prizes awarded by a group set up by Mark Abrams at Harvard mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. about that. They're now into their 30th, 31st year. They recognize science that makes you laugh and then think. And one of the winners <laughs> this year actually published a paper on what you can find in chewing gum as in once it's been round someone's mouth a few times and then spat out onto the pavement oh. if they come along and scrape it up and and measure the microbes that are in there what sorts of bacteria are there in there so that they, they won an ig nobel prize for for tracking the microbiomes of chewers mm. after they had disgorged their chewing gum onto the sidewalk Nice. So the question that Afternoon Drive is asking today about how what's the best way to dispose of this it becomes more important then because of this biome and everything else that <laughs> <laughs> Well the, the, the other thing not to do is to is to swallow it. Because oh. um although that isn't quite as risky as everyone would have you believe. If you remember back in history people used to say never never swallow chewing gum because it all builds up in Oh, that uh, so you could swallow uh-huh. it, but uh-huh. um, I, I wouldn't advise it because uh, it, you don't know what's going to happen when it gets further down the tubes. But uh, as far as we know, it's not that unsafe. Ah, okay. Yes, we did grow up with that. It's just um, we were discouraged definitely from uh, swallowing chewing gum. Um, and I see that um, the P- Perseverance rover has found signs of what they call epic ancient floods on Mars. So where it landed, apparently, the, it, it, there's a, that indicates that Mars has a very complex hydrologic history. How important is this? Oh, no, it's because although we had evidence that Mars was once a very wet place, mm-hmm. and you can look at these pictures from space, and they're tantalizingly similar to huge water systems that we would expect to see on Earth, suggesting that the same processes that make these things on Earth made them what makes these erosive type patterns on Earth is water. Uh, we, you know, that's no substitute for actually. Uh-oh. Oh, I think we should try and re-establish that line. Um, let me put the naked scientist back to uh, my technical producer. Dima, just stay, just hang, hang ten, hang ten. Dima, I'll come back to you. We also have Melanie and Blagari and a few more of your questions, even coming in via voice note. We'll get to the naked scientist in a short while. That line was um, cracking, so it was difficult to hear his responses. So we'll re-establish it uh, quickly. Let's take a break while we do that and uh, back to the lines and taking your questions for him this afternoon. 702. The Naked Scientist. We've sorted out all the kinks in the system. We now have Dr. Chris Smith on the line and taking your calls. Hi, Chris. Hello. Yeah, sorry about that. We seem to have a bit of an internet gremlin today. Yeah, yeah, it happens. It happens. Um, Let's get straight to the calls. I've got Dima calling from uh, Deep Kloof this afternoon. Hi, Dima. Hello, Azania and Dr. Chris. Um, Recently, two scientists were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for pain breakthrough. Mm. I would like Dr. Chris to kindly explain how they reached their conclusion 
because it's a relief that soon pain will be bearable. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, Chris? Um, I, I didn't know that the Peace Prize had been awarded for pink grapefruit. <laughs> for pain breakthrough. <laughs> oh, right. I couldn't understand. It sounded like pink <laughs> grapefruit. And I thought... Pain, no, I, pain breakthrough. Prize. This is the, this, the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the it's not the peace prize. It was actually the Nobel Prize for for physiology or medicine, mm. and this was announced this time last week, and it went to two scientists, one of whom I've met, the other one I haven't, but the pair of them have basically worked out how the nervous system decodes information and then sends in information about things like how spicy a curry is and also where your joints are when you move your body around. How does your body know where it is in three-dimensional space? Mm. And the way that David Julius, who discovered the curry spicy ingredients, did the experiments, very ingenious, he took cells in the laboratory dish and then added to those cells genes that he thought might be used by nerve cells to decode temperature one by one, and then added the spicy ingredient in chili peppers to those cells and kept on doing this until he added a gene which when he added the spicy ingredient in chili peppers made the cells go off like a machine gun with lots of electrical activity. Mm -hmm. And that told him that must be the gene that nerve cells use to decode hot sensations. And they also did the same thing for menthol, which is in mint, which is why when you take a deep breath in... Having sucked on a mint or cleaned your teeth, your mm. mouth feels cold. You've got the opposite effect. And then the other winner discovered when, when by doing similar experiments and prodding cells in a dish, how cells respond to movement and pressure. And putting all that together, that prize recognizes the fact that thanks to those two guys, we now know a lot more about how the nervous system decodes what is happening to our body and sends that information to the brain. Mm. And by understanding the mechanism of how that works, it means that we're a step closer to understanding how acute pain, when you injure yourself, works, how chronic pain, things like neuropathy or the pain that people who develop diabetes and then get nerve pain get, why that happens. And if we understand the mechanism of how something happens, we can then use that knowledge to develop new treatments, either to make nerve cells work better again or design drugs and other chemicals that can stop the effect so that we give relief to people in the future. Right. Oh, Dima, great question. Thank you for that breakdown, Chris. Uh, Martin in Pretoria next. Hi, Martin. Uh, Martin? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I'm a first-time caller and I'm super excited. Oh, good. <laughs> You're excited to speak to Chris. Go for to it. I the whole day while I work, so it's <laughs> fantastic to be on the radio. Oh, lovely. And I see that it's Martin, and, uh, not Martin. It's, it's fine. Martin or Martin is fine, but sure. yeah, it's actually Martin. Okay, go for it. Okay. Okay, so my question for the Naked Scientist today is, um, why do we dream? And uh, um, I, I changed my question a little bit. Why, why do some people experience nightmares and some people don't? And actually, the biggest question is just why do we dream? Mm-hmm. Is it like a bodily function or uh, I don't really know. I just uh, did some research and I couldn't get like a solid answer. Yes. Does science know why we dream, Chris? Science doesn't know the answer to this question. But what we do know is it's something that we take very, very seriously because we all do it and we all do it in excessive amounts. 
and about a third of your life you spend asleep and when you're asleep maybe a third of your dreams if your time asleep is spent dreaming so the fact that this is so strongly conserved in not just humans but other animals with complex brains like us because if we measure the brain activity of dogs and cats and even small animals like mice and rats they all have the same patterns of brain activity that we do when they go through various patterns of sleep and for that reason they are assumed to be dreaming as well and certainly people who keep pets will, will say that periodically when they're asleep the dog will start sort of woofing in its basket and, and pretending to, to run around so we think that, that other animals do this too. We don't know why we do it, but what we do know is if you stop people doing it, then they are less psychologically well and their brain works less well at processing information, making sense of new information and recalling memory than if you allow people to have a healthy sleep cycle at night. Mm. So why dreaming happens we don't know why the brain does it the way it does it we don't know but there are lots of processes tied up in sleep and it's almost certainly got some connection to how memories are consolidated how new information is decoded and then preserved for, for further recall and future recall in the brain but exactly why it happens and why it happens the way it does we have no idea and it's one of those questions a bit like consciousness yeah. how does consciousness yeah. work we don't actually know and it's very hard to ask people because they're asleep when it's happening <laughs> martin thank you very much for that question thanks for the call thank you thank you fantastic Bye. uh let's go to melanie in blickari next hi melanie Hi, Vanya. Hi, Hi dr chris greetings i just want to ask mine is more out of curiosity so i've got birds that continuously knock on two of my windows mm. um it's been happening for the past couple of months not in the same direction so the you know they the one is maybe north and the other one um south facing but they go back to the same window i'm scared one of these days it's either the window or the beaks that are going to break but yeah it's ongoing <laughs> the beaks yes yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason this happens birds are quite territorial especially the male ones, and especially around the time when they're looking to mate. And windows are highly reflective. Birds have an excellent sense of vision, and they look at the window, and they don't realize that this is a transparent object, a transparent thing, which is a window into your house. They just see a mirrored surface with a faint, vague impression of another bird sitting there. And that bird looks pretty big and beefy like they are. And it looks identical to them. And as far as they're concerned, that bird is a rival for the other birds they're going after amorously. So very often they, they peck at these windows and uh, bash at the window because they can see what they think is a rival bird. And they're just trying to see it off. And it doesn't occur to them that they're actually trying to scare themselves off. And they just keep coming back and doing it again and again. So one way around this is to try to make the window a bit less reflective or put something that the bird is more scared of, like a cat picture in the window, <laughs> or something else that the bird would regard as a bigger threat. Okay. And, th and that way, by making the window a bit less reflective, or something the bird's more scared of, it will be less inclined to keep coming and pecking at the window. Mm. It makes me think of uh, dogs, because some dogs recognize uh, the other dog in the mirror, and then other dogs just simply don't. I mean, two of the dogs uh, that we have, they both have very different relationships with the mirror or with the reflection. Yeah, with the mirror, yeah. Yeah, very, dog, very different relationships. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a black Labrador puppy. When he was a young dog, he did this 
a huge amount and he would lay on my bed, look at the mirror uh, the, by the dressing table, see himself and then go absolutely nuts. Yeah. And he would slowly escalate. <laughs> he, would, he would escalate the behaviour, building up to, it would start with small amounts of growling and then escalate to full-blown barking at himself. And then he would go and have a look behind the mirror to find this this magic dog that was somehow <laughs> in there but not there. And as he's got older, I don't know if he's just got bored of the other dog or if he's realised that something's not quite right because he doesn't do it anymore. So has he learned or has he thought, well, this thing, I never can catch it. It's just there annoying me, so I'm going to ignore it. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yes. He hasn't done it so much, but it was worse when he was little. Yeah, no, it's highly entertaining. Uh, the little one in our life is uh, <laughs> Cash Young Money. And Cash Young Money also looks at the other dog in the mirror and kind of you can see that he's trying to figure it out. Like, what's this one doing there? Like, you know, and it's copying me. I'm barking, he's barking. So it's, it's yeah. absolutely hilarious to watch. <laughs> so Melanie, it seems like you've got birds that are seeing themselves too. Yeah, reflection. I'm running to the window to do just what I heard to do now. Thank <laughs> okay. you so very much. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you for the call. Melanie. Um, let's take a listen to this voice note. Hi, Aza. Lebron Pretoria. For the naked scientist, why the vaccine they put on the, the, the muscle, on the arm, done on the vein? Like, um, if you are putting in a, a medical drip, they would look for a vein. But the vaccine they put right on the, 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 the meat, if I use that word, on the muscle. Why is that the case? Why? Right. So why do we take the injection there on the arm? Well, some drugs are designed purposefully to go into the bloodstream and we give them intravenously. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of doing that is that you get a lot of the chemical into circulation and therefore all around the body really. And this is important with certain life-threatening diseases. If you, for instance, have to give antibiotics, some drugs that need to be distributed everywhere quickly, some anesthetics are given this way. If a person's in pain, you want the chemical everywhere in the body where it hurts and particularly into the nervous system as fast as possible. And the best way to do that is to give it into the bloodstream. Yeah. Other drugs are designed to be placed in the muscle. The muscle can take a big injection, but rather like soaking up a, a sponge, the water, and then slowly squeezing the water out, the muscle can slowly release or drip the chemical out into the body over a longer period of time. Oh. That's one reason. In the case of vaccines, it can be that, but it can also be that the muscle cells get to pick up what's in the vaccine and they then present it to the immune system. So that's another reason why. But if you were to just inject a vaccine into the vein, mm. then it wouldn't potentially access the right cells at the right time in order to give you a good enough immune response. It would potentially just get neutralized straight away. It would be, it would be um, relieved, removed from the body. So it, it actually is with the intent of having a long-term, what we call depot of material in the muscle that, mm. that is, is you do it for that reason and we also have certain antibiotic preparations and this was more popular historically people would put certain uh, antibiotics into the muscle because stay there for a long time and give protection against diseases over a long period of time if someone needed a lot of antibiotics but they couldn't take them every day for example so it really is a case of, of uh, pharmacological horses for courses here mm. Right, and then a quick one about there've been two juice recalls. One, the main uh, one of the big retailers recalled um, one of their juices, and also a manufacturer recalled uh, one of their juices, and they come in a carton, and it's believed that they contain.